good morning. If you have uh, instinctively started turning to 2 Corinthians, I will stop you in your tracks. And I'll ask you to join me in the Old Testament, turning to the book of Ruth. We'll be looking at Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 this morning. Bobby and Marty, we're praying for them and thankful for the chance they have to be in California uh, visiting their son in, uh, son-in-law and daughter. Uh, and so we must pause our study of 2 Corinthians that we've been in now for some time. Uh, this gives us an opportunity, starting this week, to take some time to explore what I think we'll see is a quite different part of Scripture. It's always interesting to move from, say, an epistle of, of Paul to a narrative in the Old Testament. Um, and so we're going to start that this morning. Many of you may be familiar with the, uh, the account that we're going to be working through here in the weeks to come. You may be familiar with the names of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and the things that the Lord did to weave their lives together. If you're like me, I think that what will likely happen as we work our way through this narrative is that you may find yourself surprised at many points and, if you're like me, impressed all over again at the wisdom of God that we find in his word, the wisdom that we find in the way he has given it to us, and in particular, in a story like this, the wisdom that we see on display as we watch God direct history. It's really a very encouraging thing to experience and then to remind ourselves that this is the same God directing our history today. I hope that that happens for us. We're going to do two things this morning. Uh, The first thing is we're going to take note of some introductory information about the book of Ruth that we really ought to know. There are a lot of things we could do by way of introduction of a book that we're not going to spend time with, but there are some things that will be helpful for us to understand what the purpose of this book is in the wider context of Scripture. So we're going to start by just noticing a few pieces of introductory information. And then secondly, we're going to get as far as verse 5 this morning, which means that we're going to have the setting of this story laid out for us. This is what we'll see in the first five verses, is really a setup of the circumstances that the whole story takes place uh, within. And we'll find this is a very significant setting indeed. So before we read the passage, uh, let's talk for just a moment about Ruth in the wider context of Scripture and the way that Ruth has been handled by God's people in history. There are two things about this book that I find very interesting and especially interesting to see together. Uh, The first thing is that uh, there's something that's not true about Ruth that is true about a number of other Old Testament books. You may be aware that in the course of time, as as God's people have recognized the inspired words that he's given us in Scripture, there have been many points at which there's been some debates among God's people about whether this book or that book ought to be in the canon of Scripture. Certain books have had to go through something of a, of a testing uh, in order to be recognized as being Scripture. That is not true of the book of Ruth. We have no record of Ruth ever being disputed as belonging in Scripture. All of the earliest Jewish and then uh, Christian lists of Scripture unanimously included the book of Ruth. 
I find that very interesting given what this story is. And I think already we begin to see in that a glimpse of how God has used this book in the life of his people and how God's people have seen this book in terms of its importance. We could maybe say it this way. If this story is simply a love story between two people that is beautiful, you would expect there to be points in history where there might be some challenging or at least some questioning. Is this a book of scripture? It seems that God's people have long understood that something far deeper than simply a love story is going on here as we understand the story of the book of Ruth. So that's the first interesting thing about this book. The second is that uh, while those sorts of disputes have not been present uh, surrounding the book of Ruth, uh, there has been a different dispute, or at least a, a, a difference of approach at different points in, in history. And that had to do with the placement of the book. Where should Ruth go in the arrangement of the Old Testament books? There's been different approaches to that. There's a couple in particular that have been the main lines of of ordering the Old Testament books in history. Uh, one of them is the one we have in our English Bibles. Uh, this is the one that we're used to. This is the one that Miss Roxanne taught me to sing when I was a little kid. Uh, and that ordering really follows the Septuagint. This is the historical path of the Greek Old Testament. It has a long-standing tradition in history of ordering the Old Testament books like this. And that order, as you know, puts Ruth between which two books? Sing the song in your head. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel. So it puts it right between Judges and 1st Samuel. And that makes a great deal of sense. We're going to see this morning that this story happens during the time of the Judges. And 1st and 2nd Samuel are all about the preparation and, and uh, bringing by God of the Davidic kingdom, of the Davidic line. And here we have the book of Ruth right in between, which ends with, us, with the chronology of King David. So we, we see the sense in placing it uh, where we have. And as we think of that order that we have in our English Bibles, think about what happens then. Ruth becomes a story of how God actually worked in history to accomplish the rescue that he is going to bring through King David. We get an on-the-ground piece of the history there of how God providentially worked to bring that about. That's what we have in the book of Ruth. The other ordering that the church has, or that God's people have, have taken in history, and this is especially in Jewish history, has placed Ruth further along in the Old Testament. They used to split up the Old Testament into three parts. They still do. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And in that arrangement, they, would, they took the book of Ruth and put it in that third section in the writings. And many of them put Ruth, in fact, right before the book of Psalms because they, they viewed Ruth and treated it as a preface to the Psalms. Isn't that interesting? Why would they have done that? Well, it's because the Psalms were thought of and in, even called the book of David. And so they placed Ruth right before the book of David, the book in which God gives his people wisdom through uh, a number of servants, but in particular through the servant David. And as we've said, Ruth ends with a genealogy leading right into that. They saw that as a perfect segue. Uh, I, I bring those up to you just so you can notice what both of those orderings do. They both do the same thing. And again, it really helps us to 
understand how God has used this book in the life of his people. Both of those orderings make clear that a main purpose of the book of Ruth is to point in some way, as we're going to see, to King David. In fact, each of these orderings do this. But we know something even more, don't we? We know that this story that God is, is progressively giving us through the scriptures go beyond King David himself. The, the Old Testament prophets began to make clear to Israel that David is going to produce a king one day with an eternal reign and a reign of peace that will extend to every part of the globe. There is coming a son of David who will bring God's blessing to the end of the earth. And so what we really have here in the book of Ruth then is we have an on-the-ground example in human history of how God has brought grace to the entire world. Well, if that's what Ruth is giving us, story of how God brings grace to the world, let me ask you a question. What, what sort of setting do you expect to see a story happen in? when it's all about the coming of God's grace? What kind of setting uh, prepares us for that sort of a story? It's a very important question. And I hope that this morning as we begin to look at the book of Ruth, this serves as something of a reminder to us about what grace actually is. It can be sometimes we can get to a place where we think kind of like this. Where will God's grace come to me in my life? Well, his grace will come in the times in my life where I am walking in obedience and faith to him. That's where God's grace will come. And when I'm walking in disobedience, that's where I should expect to not find God's grace. And I want to remind you this morning, if that's how you think of the setting of God's grace in our lives, then you have forgotten what grace is. Where is it that grace is needed? Grace is what is needed when we have fallen short. And as we'll see this morning, that, that fits exactly the setting that we have of this story. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and read our passage. Uh, and I'll ask you to stand with me if you're able. I'll be reading just the first five verses of Ruth chapter 1. So please stand with me. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And Father, we do again pause before you now as we, as we begin to peer into your word and we thank you for it. We celebrate it as the gift that it is, the undeserved 
and tremendously needed gift that you're giving us this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to come to your word eager for it, hungry for it, ready to bring it in and to let it change us as we know that your word does. So, Lord, please attend our time uh, in your word with your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The two central characters of this book are named for us, and I just feel compelled to tell you I'm going to use the word characters when I speak of them. I can't, I've sort of given up trying not to. Uh, this is a narrative, so it is telling a story. Please don't understand me to be suggesting that this is some sort of a fictional account when I use the word characters. I just can't stop myself from saying that, so you'll uh, accommodate me, I hope. The, the two, two of the central characters here, we've just seen already. They are the women Naomi and Ruth. Uh, Naomi and Ruth are each going to make a number of decisions in this book. Some of them will be good decisions. Many more of them will be bad ones. And all of their choices are going to have consequences connected to them, real consequences. However, one of the things we're going to find as we work through this narrative is that as important as their choices are that they make, there is another factor that is directing this story. We could put it this way. Uh, when we find them rejoicing in complete satisfaction at the end of this story, which is what we're going to find, when we get there here in a number of weeks and we hear them and we see them like that and we ask, how do they get there? The answer will most certainly not be, well, it was the wise, savvy choices that they made. That's what brought them there. No, that will not be the answer. It'll be very clear, in fact, that a number of places the author of this book intentionally works to make clear that there is so much providence in this story in between any savvy decisions that they make and the outcome at the end. Now, there's so much providence in between that the answer that will quickly come to our lips on that last week is going to be, no, this is owed to the grace of God. That's what we're seeing here. God's grace is going to be present in times when the characters completely fail to recognize it. And it's going to be present in times when we, as the reader, would not have expected to see it. And one of the things that I pray that the Lord grants to us through this study is a greater sense of who our God actually is, what He is like, how He works. This God that we're going to see that is so present in his grace with those whom he has chosen, this is the God that is watching over you and me this morning and who will do so every day of our lives. This story is an example to us of why we are right, where we are always right and safe to trust him with our circumstances. I mentioned that grace is present here in Ruth sometimes in places where we might not expect it. And I do think that's where we find ourselves this morning in verses 1 to 5. Uh, there are some details that we're going to go through here that seem to our eyes sort of benign, just unimportant set-up details that are actually not unimportant at all to the story. What we're going to find in these verses is that the setting of the story of Ruth is replete with unfaithful choices and disobedience from God's people. 
We see it all the way from verse 1. Uh, look with me back at verse 1. We're going, we see that this story is taking place in an unfaithful time in the history of God's people. Verse 1 said this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And we'll just stop there for a moment. Now, that statement locates us in two ways, in fact. The first is obvious. This story happens during the time of the judges. And if you remember anything about the book of Judges, you immediately have a sense of the context here. There is no king in the land. It's a time in, in the history of God's people that is summed up by the last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The author is giving the, um, the diagnosis of the time of the Judges. And here comes Ruth, and we learn that this is going to happen in that time period. Now, if you remember Judges, there was a bit of a cyclical nature that went throughout that, uh, that time period. There would be unfaithfulness and disobedience. There would be judgment. And then, especially at the beginning of the period, there would be repentance, crying out to God, and he would restore them. That did not always happen. As the book goes on, they slowly stop repenting and turning back. Uh, but we remember that cycle. So one question we might ask is, okay, this is happening during the time of the judges, but what piece of the cycle that we know characterizes judges? Well, and I think within that, we find even a further uh, placing by this statement in verse 1. Because we read that this happened uh, when the judges ruled and when in that time there was a famine in the land. This is taking place in a time of unfaithfulness and therefore of judgment on God's people. We have to remember something as we're thinking about this story in the year 2020. This story is set in a particular covenantal context. Israel is living before God within the Mosaic Covenant. And they've been warned in the Mosaic Covenant about forgetting God and disobeying Him. And those warnings, when we look at them, they are not just in the law, but also in the prophets that bring condemnation later. The warnings of God in the context of the Mosaic Covenant are intimately tied to life in the land. Just to give you one example as a reminder, you remember the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother, what? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There are, there are just example after example of the instances where God, in speaking of their relationship to him, whether being blessed or being cursed, ties it to their experience of life in the land. And so we're meant to hear in these descriptions of this happening in the time of the judges, at a time of famine, that all is not well in the promised land. All is not well at all. Uh, the land that was flowing with milk and honey now suffers under a famine. Uh, this becomes even more explicit uh, as we continue in verse 1, because notice who he brings in and how he describes this man. It continues by introducing for us a man of Bethlehem, it says, who's decided to sojourn in Moab because of this famine. Now, there is irony for us to notice here. And certainly, this is intentional on the part of the author, since Bethlehem, as a word, means house of bread. 
And it's named that, I'm not instant, not just casually, they named it that because of its reputation as being a land of tremendous fruitfulness. Listen to all of the things that, were, that Bethlehem was known for producing in mass. This was a land that faithfully, fruitfully grew year after year. Wheat, barley, olives, almonds, grapes. Does your backyard produce those things well? What sort of a land produces almonds and grapes and wheat? This is the house of bread. And this man, who is literally from the house of bread cannot provide food for his family. And so he packs them up and he leaves. Now this is another moment here for our text this morning where we have to think very carefully. How are we supposed to think about their choice to leave the land and to go to Moab? It's not a question that doesn't have some, uh, some disagreement and some debate to it. There are some who suggest uh, that this is actually supposed to, we're supposed to read this, and see it as a hopeful, exciting sign. Because after all, it's argued, well, this is what happened to the patriarchs. The patriarchs fled the land because of famine. Abraham did it in Genesis 12. Isaac did it in Genesis 26. Jacob and his sons do it in Genesis 41. So maybe he's tapping into that storyline of the people. Maybe we're supposed to hear of this fleeing from famine and get excited and wonder what amazing things God is about to do. That's the way that some understand the situation. I do not think that's what's going on here at all, and let me tell you why. Uh, again, it comes down to our understanding of the covenantal placing of this story. You have to remember that when the patriarchs left the land because of famine, even though it had been promised to them all the way from Abraham's time, that was a promise of the land that God had not yet brought about for them. Even as they're living in that land, God promised to them. The Bible calls them sojourners in that land. It's not a promise that has been brought to fulfillment by the work of God. And between that time of the patriarchs and Ruth chapter 1, kind of a lot has happened in the history of God's working with his people. God has now made good on all of those promises that he had given to their forefathers to give them a land. A land, again, that he describes over and over again as a land flowing with milk and honey. How often did we hear that in the Old Testament stories? And he has told them, as he covenanted with them through the covenant with Moses, he's told them what makes for a blessed life in the promised land. Faith and obedience is what is required for a blessed life in the land. And you remember maybe some of the progression of God's promised curses. There will be a number of, of calamities that he will bring on them in hopes that they will repent and turn back to him. If they do not, the time will come where the worst thing will happen. What's the worst thing that the Mosaic Covenant warns the people about? Exile from the land. That's the end of the road of judgment. There's nothing worse in the Mosaic Covenant than exile from the land. We have to remember those details here. This is the context in which they have been brought into this land. This family that we're being introduced to of Elimelech is not being described to us in a way that we're supposed to see as praiseworthy. Instead, what we find is we're being introduced here to a family 
that simply typifies the situation that Israel is in at that moment. They are typical of the Israelite unfaithfulness that's happening in this time. They have been judged. They are going through difficulty. We learn later this is actually probably a very wealthy family. They could have stuck it out for quite a while, but they're dealing with a time of need. And in that need, they look out with desire at the greener pastures of Moab. And it's what they think is best for them. It's what they think is best for their sons. Moab. Moab is the place whose king hired Balaam to curse the people of Israel in Numbers 22 to 24. Moab is the place whose women had intentionally seduced them to idolatry in Numbers 25 and brought God's judgment upon them. Moab is the place whose king, probably very recently by now, oppressed Israel in Judges chapter 3. Moab is the people whose God required child sacrifices for worship. Quite a place to intentionally move your family. There's no mention here given, no thought, uh, as to perhaps Elimelech and Naomi perceiving the spiritual dryness that's preceded this famine. No thought toward getting their house in order, uh, repenting of unfaithfulness, trusting in God, being a witness of this to their community. No, their solution is to sojourn in Moab. And we should notice that word because it changes in these verses. The first decision that Elimelech makes is to sojourn in Moab. Sojourning is a very temporary situation. We sojourned to Colorado a couple of times a year. You might not even know we were gone because we're there and we're back before, we, uh, before Sunday happens. Uh, sojourning is short term and this is reflective of their intentions. Let's go to Moab, get some food, and come back. Verse 2 gives us their names. We have Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, together with their two sons, Malon and Kilion. We'll talk more next week about the meaning and significance of some of those names. But they leave to sojourn in Moab. In verse 2, what happens? Well, they wind up remaining there. That's what happens. Are you struck when you hear that, of how typical that is of us all? This is one of the things that makes up so much of our regrets in life. This is one of the things that uh, so much fuels the desires we have for our children for the children of our body here. So, so much of a desire do we have to spare them of exactly the thing that is on display here in verse 2. And that is the deceptive nature of our sin. How many times have you found it to be true in your own life? How many of your regrets would have been spared if you had understood this truth about sin that in its self-justification, it always boasts small and acts large. How often do we start down a path that we seem to think necessity is forcing us onto, but we comfort ourselves, even though we know we are choosing 
sin. We're choosing a, a lack of trust. We comfort ourselves with this assurance. Well, this will be quite temporary. Only to look around much later, absolutely shocked in the wake of devastation that sin always brings, that those original intentions did not quite turn out like we thought they would. We're going to find in verse 4 that they live in Moab for more than 10 years by the time this is finished. But don't go to verse 4 yet. Go to verse 3 because it's time for us to do what the text starts to do now, and that is to, st to begin focusing our attention on the person of Naomi. It does that very deliberately, even in a way that would have surprised uh, earlier readers when it says, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. That is a very uncommon thing to do, to refer to a man by his wife. And this is intentionally leading us to fix our eyes on Naomi. She is where we need to draw attention now. And it's proper for us. We have some questions for Naomi at the moment. How much of what we've been saying applies to her? She's been following her husband's lead to this point, right? Maybe all of the problems that we're describing, the spiritual insensitivities, maybe those things don't describe Naomi. Maybe she's been longing to return to the land that God has given her people. Maybe just describe her husband. Well, we need to notice that in verse 3, Elimelech dies, and she, it says, was left with her two sons. And now we have to ask her, well, what are you going to do? Her husband dies in verse 3, and then in verse 4, they proceed to stay for 10 years. Furthermore, in verse 4, no doubt with the, with the help and work of Naomi, both of her sons, Malon and Kilion, take Moabite wives for themselves. And this presents even further problems. Again, pr problems that may not be immediately apparent to our eyes, but that would have been very apparent in their original context. If you have a study Bible, it might mention to you at the bottom, some of them do, that there is no, uh, there is no statement in the law that prohibits marriage to Moabites. There, is, there are passages that prohibit, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 27, that prohibits marriage to the Canaanite nations, those that God is driving out of the promised land. You were not to marry them. There's no explicit statement like that about marrying Moabites. But the problem here isn't directly because they are Moabites by descent. Think with me about the situation that we've been describing here. Um, and let me actually point you to, you don't need to turn here, but Deuteronomy 7, that's what I was thinking of. Deuteronomy 7 is the place where they are prohibited from marrying certain Canaanite peoples. But listen, even there, there are good reasons to suspect that those prohibitions were not so much about the place of national origin as they were about self-identification. There were ways that foreigners could come to identify themselves as belonging to the people of Israel and no longer belonging to their own original nations. A good example of that is Rahab the prostitute. You remember Rahab? It seems very probable that after she was accepted into the nation, Joshua 6 tells us that Rahab lived out her days in Israel, uh, that she fully assimilated into Jewish Israelite life and in fact married an Israelite. 
There's a genealogy in Matthew 1.5 that mentions Rahab by name right in this time period. It's almost certainly that Rahab. But listen, how could that be? Rahab was one of the Canaanite nations that Deuteronomy 7 prohibits them from marrying. There is no way that if, if, if it only has to do with national origin, that right after receiving that law, one of them is allowed to marry uh, Rahab in that context. And the answer to this has to be that likely she has come to be seen as belonging to them and not to Canaanite nations. She had put her trust in Yahweh as her God. Hebrews 11.31 tells us that. And she had become one of them. So the problem here with Malon and Kilion isn't the nationality of these women per se. It's the state of these women. These are not Moabites like Rahab was a Canaanite. These are not Moabite women who have come to Israel in search of Israel's God. These are legit Moabite women. These are Moabite God-worshipping women. When Malon and Kilion find them and think them good wives to take. Verses 15 and 16 of this chapter will make clear that they have their own gods that they are worshiping in the land of Moab. And we have the very recent example at this point of Numbers chapter 25. Would you just look with me very quickly at Numbers 25 verses 1 and 2. And again, just be conscious of the nearness in history between some of these events. Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. There is a history of idolatry coming from a move like this. These marriages are easily supposed to be seen by us with alarm. So it's in these circumstances that the, the story of Ruth is starting to be set up. And it's here in, in, in this set of conditions that we come to meet the woman after whom this book is going to be named. Verse 4, look again. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the, the name of the other Ruth. not the way that we think about Ruth. What we're thinking of right now, this Moabite God-worshipping woman. We think of her in very different terms, but you know why that is. That's because we're accustomed to thinking of her after the grace of God is done with her. And the two pictures could not be more different. It's the case for you, and it's the case for me. We look nothing alike when God is done with us compared with what we were like when he began. Coming into verse 5, I think we're meant to be shocked by the starkness of the statement in verse 5. There's, there's a lack of detail here. It's very blunt. Verse 5 says, And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I think of all in her experience, in Naomi's experience, that that sentence sums up. It's a jarring thing to read. And I think it leaves us with a sense of how sudden all of this was for Naomi. 
in the course of a verse and a half here, you notice, her entire world has come crashing down around her. That's how fast this has happened in the narrative. Her husband is gone. Her sons are gone. And equally important, her son, no sons have been born to her sons. Ten years of marriage, barrenness in these ten years, no children produced. The entire family line is in danger of being wiped out in a verse and a half. And she personally has no means of being cared for in her old age. In this time period, she is the picture of hopelessness as she stands like this. And there's zero commentary about it. It's all in the course of the setting for the real story. You notice that? This is, the story of Ruth is not the story of what has happened to Naomi in the land of Moab. The story of Ruth is the story of what God will do, what God can do with us as a result of his powerful grace. So there's not much to comment on here because there's not much commentary in the text. But I do think there's at least one thing we are supposed to be, be thinking about at this point because of how things have transpired. And it's this. How has their decision gone for them? How did it go for them to opt for greener pastures according to what their eyes could see rather than working to get their house in order before the Lord? How has that turned out? We find in verse 6 next week that things have changed at this point in Israel. God has visited them and he has given his people food. He did that in the very same years that everything was lost to Naomi. And this is where we simply leave her for this week. Standing as the picture of hopelessness, looking at the camera, as it were, with no clue of what comes next. And as we see, no hope in her heart. As we see her like this, it's difficult for us because we know the end of the story. We know the smile that will fill her face at the end of this. It's difficult for us to do what we need to do right now. We need to think of her right here in verse 5. What are some things that the Lord would teach us by looking at Naomi as she stands here in verse 5? And let me give you two of these. As I said, we, we know how the story turns out. I will give you spoilers on a regular basis through this series because I'm assuming you know how it ends. If you don't, then you need to go read the book of Ruth before next week. If you do know how it ends, you still should read the book of Ruth before next week. Um, at this juncture in the story, it is important to notice something. We look ahead and see the blessedness that is coming to Naomi. But we have to state consciously at this moment in verse 5 that that blessed outcome was not inevitable to Naomi from a human perspective. Or maybe better put, that blessed outcome was never promised to her. We cheer for her because we know how this story will end. But for every Naomi that chooses a path of unfaithfulness and is shocked by the blessing of God that he brings in his grace. For every Naomi like that, there's another Naomi that chooses a path of unfaithfulness and walks it all the way to destruction. She stands in a place of zero safety as far as she knows. This is an, a concept that is uncomfortable to us, and I think we don't think about it often today nearly so much as Christians of the past thought about 
such realities. One man who wrote a lot about this very powerfully was Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he, he speaks often about our need to consciously grasp the situation that every sinner is in. Can I share with you some words that he wrote to that effect? This is one thing that he wrote. God has laid himself under no <clears throat> God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell for one moment. God certainly has made no promises either to I just lost my place, excuse me. God certainly has made no promises either of eternal life or of deliverance or preservation from eternal death, except what are contained in the promises given in Christ, in whom all the promises are yes and amen. Speaking of the unbeliever, he says, till he believes in Christ, God is under no manner of obligation to keep him a moment from eternal destruction. We know the sovereignty of God in these things. We know that none are found that can be lost, anything like that. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the unimaginable place of danger that everyone stands in at every moment who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as far as Naomi goes, we can say this. If any good is going to come to Naomi in the course of this account, it's going to be an act of sheer grace that we see on display. It's one thing we need to take note of at this point in verse 5. The second is this. We've talked about this already a little bit. Uh, we've said that the first five verses here are a setting for a story about God's grace. Uh, we, we, we can't miss the fact that the details we're seeing about Naomi here and her situation are normative details for the place that God's grace shows up. I asked the question at the beginning, what sort of condition do you think of that you expect God's grace to come out of, to be found in? Naomi typifies every sinner who has experienced God's grace. And if you think about what we said concerning the purpose of the book of Ruth, she actually does that in a pretty specific and amazing way. So think about her like this, okay? Here stands Naomi. Here stands a sinner undeserved of mercy and goodness, who now is being set on a path by the will of God, even in spite of her own plans. It's a gracious path. It leads her back to him. And in fact, the path will lead her directly to the line of David. It's where her path is going to find its end. Her hopes, her fears, her needs are all going to find satisfaction in the coming of the line of David. And that statement is true of every person in human history who has ever thirsted for righteousness and been satisfied by the grace of God. That's the exact life summary statement of every one of us who know the experience of God's grace. At the moment, we see Naomi as a person this is coming to who isn't even looking for it. And so we thank God for his sovereign grace that extends even to those who are not searching for it. In the weeks that are to come, we're going to continue to watch this gracious God at work. 
Uh, we're going to continue to see him bringing grace to places we don't expect and bringing it in moments when the participants can't even see it yet. We'll see that next week. I pray that this morning, this experience that we have had of God's word leads us. And I would say it to you. I pray that this experience of God's word will lead you and your family today to praise God again for the grace he has shown to you in his son and to talk to each other about that grace that he has given to you in your past. And because of the promises that we have in Christ, the sure grace that we look forward to in days and years to come. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we, are, we are always confronted when we come to your word. We're confronted with our, with our lack of faith. We're confronted with our ever-present need for your kindness, for your patience, for your grace. And it's as we said this morning, Lord, we acknowledge together here as a church that all of your promises to us are yes and amen in Jesus. We thank you for him. The thought of an eternity spent in growing knowledge and gratitude for what your son has done, an eternity of praise to your son. This is a blessed thought indeed. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on uh, what is to come. Help us to live the present in light of your future promises. We thank you for them. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our benediction? And we'll be dismissed with the words of 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We are dismissed.